Well, you can turn in your Bibles to the book of Joshua, and we're kind of rounding out not only the, the, the narrative that we began last week, or the past few weeks, really, with the Gibeonites, but we are going to turn a corner in the book of Joshua in general. From here on out, uh, it's going to be unique in, in preaching the text, because there's going to be a lot of almost... Um, legal documentation. You're going to hit a whole big long section of multiple chapters talking about the different inheritances of land that the tribes get. And uh, when we get there, I'll I'll reveal a little bit more of how we're going to address that. Uh, But we will get through large chunks of Joshua once we hit, um, once we hit that section. But for now, we are continuing the narrative from last week. And if you need the refresher, Um, Just real quickly, Joshua chapter 9, if you remember the Israelites after having success at Jericho, after having a failure but then success at Ai, uh, a group of people known as the Gibeonites realized that if we want to avoid the utter destruction and calamity that has come upon Jericho and Ai, maybe we should strike for peace with these Israelites. The problem being that God had told the Israelites that all the inhabitants of Canaan or the promised land were to be destroyed, that God was using the Israelites as a sword to bring his judgment against their sins. And the Gibeonites were on that list of those people who needed to be destroyed, so they employed a deception. They came to the Israelites in the guise of pretending to be some far-off nation that had heard of the great deeds of Yahweh and of Israel and knew that uh, they must make peace with them. And so here we are, uh, bedraggled. Here we are, um, after traveling this great distance, we're at your mercy. Please make a covenant of peace with us. And the Israelites, despite smelling something was off with this deal, ended up taking... Uh, or ended up making a peace covenant with these Gibeonites. As that deception was found out, um, they were rightly um, angry and upset at it. However, they knew that they had made this deal with them and could not break it. And it was their own fault for falling into this deception because, as Joshua 9.14 said, they did not ask counsel from the Lord. They didn't check in with God about making this treaty. So now they were kind of stuck in this uh, agreement with the Gibeonites. Well, in Joshua chapter 10, the faithfulness and loyalty of the Israelites was tested because the surrounding kings heard about what the Gibeonites did, and they're, they're upset that the Gibeonites betrayed them. They're a little bit uh, afraid of, of the Israelites who are now coming to march against them, and they band together, and they are going to attack those Gibeonites and punish them for daring to turn against them. The Gibeonites were uh, one of the uh, mightiest and strongest city nations at the time, and it was really a blow to them that they would turn and uh, seek Israel. Now, what they should have done is thought, you know, if the Gibeonites got away with it, maybe we can get away with it too. But in their hearts was this stubbornness uh, and this hardness towards God. And so they attacked the Gibeonites. The Gibeonites, as soon as they realized they're under siege, they send messengers to Israel and to Joshua saying, we are under attack. You need to come and help us. And we saw... Uh, last week, that indeed the Israelites honored their agreement with the Gibeonites. They come up against these five kings of the Amorites, and they absolutely rout 
the enemy forces. And we talked about the kind of the interesting thing about Joshua 10. One of the most fascinating miracles of the Bible is that Joshua pleaded with God to cause the sun to not set. Another way to put that is to cause the earth not to rotate in order that he might continue um, their advance against the the Amorite kings. And so it was that the Lord did. Um, We saw other miracles such as uh, the panic that that struck the Gibeonites when the Israelites attacked. We also saw the gigantic hailstones that assaulted the armies um, of the uh, kings here. But the greatest miracle really is this somewhat mysterious, but very much a God thing, (laughs) miracle of the earth standing still. So, Joshua chapter 10, 15 ends with, so Joshua returned and all Israel with him to the camp at Gilgal. Remember, they had made that base camp. If you're a map person, you can find all the, the maps and locations on the back of your handout. Now, if you notice, and that's where we ended last time. If you notice at Joshua 10, verse 43, look how it ends. Then Joshua returned and all Israel with him to the camp at Gilgal. Nearly identical phrasing, which is to say what happens between verses 16 and 42 are essentially giving more details about what had actually happened on this uh, uh, at this time. Now, it was likely more than a period of one day because of all that's going to happen. Um, But there's more to their conquest of the southern half of the promised land than simply they routed these kings. So we're continuing a narrative. That's why I gave you some of that background if you weren't here back then. Um, But we are filling in some of the details about how the rest of the southern portion of the promised land was uh, conquered by Joshua and the Israelites. Now, let me tell you up front, (laughs) these are somewhat challenging passages of the Bible to preach, not because there's any difficulty interpreting them, they're pretty plain about what's happening, but because it's a very foreign concept to talk, to relate somehow with Joshua and the Israelites as they trap these kings in a cave, and then they're going to put their feet on their necks, and then they're going to kill them, and then they're going to go into the cities of these people and just absolutely destroy everyone. And what does that have to do with me? What does that have to do with tomorrow? I got to go into my work or I got to go to school. What does that have to do with sending emails and driving up the five freeway in traffic? Like that, I don't, how am I supposed to find any kind of connection with this? Well, I hope we can, of course, make some connections here. But you also want to take the big picture, the biggest picture of all. When you read Joshua, is really this, that God keeps his promises. All the things that happen in Joshua are really about God keeping the promises that he made in the first five books of the Bible. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. Right? In those five books, God had made these promises to men like Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and <coughs> Moses, and to many others. And in Joshua, we see a lot of them fulfilled. God keeps his promises. It took uh, a few hundred years or more than a few hundred years, but God keeps his promises. God knows how to follow through with, um, with his 
intents and purposes with man. So we want to always see in, in Joshua this theme that the sovereign God is going to accomplish his purposes. He's going to keep his promises. And because of that, we can be confident and courageous like Joshua was commanded to be many, many times. But we'll also maybe hopefully, hopefully find some connections here with, uh, with what's going on, even if it's not exact detail. Now, uh, let's start in verse 16. These five kings, so these are the kings of the city, uh, really city-states that uh, had united against Israel. They fled and hid themselves in the cave at Makeda. You can see this on the back of your handout on the map. And it was told to Joshua, the five kings have been found hidden in the cave at Makeda. And Joshua said, roll large stones against the mouth of the cave and set men by it to guard them. But do not stay there yourselves. Pursue your enemies. Attack their rear guard. Do not let them enter their cities, for Yahweh your God has given them into your hand. When Joshua and the sons of Israel had finished striking them with a great blow until they were wiped out, and when the remnant that remained of them had entered into the fortified cities, then all the people returned safe to Joshua in the camp at Makeda. Not a man moved his tongue against any of the people of Israel. So here, what we don't, didn't quite see in the first half of Joshua 10 was what was the fate of these five kings who had united to fight against Joshua. And as it turns out, uh, they tried to hide in a cave. Now, caves can actually be a very good place to hide. David and his armies hid in the caves near the Dead Sea, and they successfully eluded Saul for quite some time with a greater host of people than just five. But there, <laughs> near the Dead Sea, those caves form networks, right? And, and there's many ways you could get into a cave, and, and they moved around a lot. But caves are not a good place to hide if your enemy knows exactly where you are, and there's no other exits or entrances to the cave, which is, of course, the situation that the five kings found themselves in. And so having uh, been cornered, Joshua orders actually that the caves that they're in be sealed so that they could be imprisoned while they went on to chase their enemies back into their cities and uh, continue to be really the instrument, again, of God's vengeance and judgment against them. When it says that the people return safe to Joshua, uh, that suggests that no one died, that everyone was able to return. There was very little casualty. And actually, in, in some ways, in the ancient uh, world, there, there would be times when you'd engage in a battle and people were just so flighty and panicky that you could have a military engagement and no one, no one dies. But the, the idea here is, is really that this was a supernatural thing, that God had fought this battle. Yes, they were the ones running down the hills and, and, and wielding the sword and so on. But um, the fact that everyone returned safe, that's a God thing. So they come back and then the text says that not a man moved his tongue against any of the people of Israel. And that is to say that no one dared to speak anything against them. Not the Amorites, not, not anybody. <laughs> no one could say anything against the Israelites. And that's not so much a statement about the wonderful deeds of the Israelites, but about what God had done through the Israelites. That's really the idea. Well, is there any way to make a connection between this um, absolute kind of a rout of the enemies and God's favor and grace being shown to the Israelites? 
and us. Is any connection? Well, I, I think I found at least one. Uh, obviously, when we apply these texts some way to our lives, uh, I'm not going to be giving you battle strategy. Um, you know, well, maybe the next time you've got five Amorite kings trapped in the caves, um, it's a good idea to trap them there with a large stone. Sure. <laughs> but you're likely not to find yourself in that situation. Um, I'd be very surprised. Instead, we find ourselves as Christians in the daily context and really the daily spiritual battle. And how is it that we are to live our lives such that we can see that the enemies, they flee before us, the the enemies, they cannot even speak against us because they see God working in us. Well, 1 Peter actually is an entire book really about living that kind of life especially in the context of suffering. It's in a way almost the opposite because here in Joshua, it's a great military victory and the Israelites are the ones who have the upper hand and they're the ones that are very dominant. But in First Peter, it's almost a greater act of God that while we are suffering and while we are the object of persecution, while we are the ones that seem to be in the weaker position, Peter's saying there's a way you can live that demonstrates the strength of God. There's a way that you can even suffer that silences your opponents. And so the whole book really is, is about that, but in particular, 1 Peter 3, 15 and 16 says this, For this is the will of God, that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Oh, I'm sorry. That was 1 Peter 2, 15. Sorry, 1 Peter 3, 15. That's a good verse too, by the way. 1 Peter 3.15. Uh, but, um, oh, let's, let's start in verse 13. Let's start in verse 13. 1 Peter 3.13. Now, who is there to harm you if you're zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. Remember the command in Joshua over and over again. Do not fear. I am with you. Same idea. Have no fear of those who seem bigger, stronger, who seem to have it out for you and you have no defense. Instead, uh, Peter says, do this. But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ Jesus may be put to shame. Or you could say their mouths would be stopped. Or you could say in the language of Joshua 10, no one, not a man moved his tongue against any of the people of Israel. Peter's saying even in the midst of suffering, even though there are those out there who are against you, you don't have to fear. Instead, here is your defense. You're not on the offensive like the Israelites were commanded to go and conquer. We actually get to that uh, in just a minute as far as our own uh, contemporary Christian lives. But here, Peter's saying there's something you can do to shut the mouths of those who have an accusation against you. You, always be ready. Put Christ in your hearts as number one, just like Joshua was supposed to. And if you do that, and when you do that, when someone asks you for the hope that is in with the, within you, give an argument. Give a defense. Um, give a, 
The word here in Greek is apologia, and it's where we get the term apologetics, which doesn't mean apologizing for what you believe, but explaining and putting forth what you believe. And do it with gentleness and respect, with a good conscience, meaning that you're doing this in a way we're not sinning against people. We're not slapping in the people in the face and cramming a Bible down their throat with anger and hostility. Instead, do it with gentleness, respect, clear conscience, so that when they do try to say and open their mouth against you, their own mouths will indict them. They will be like, they will say in their own heart, yeah, uh, they don't really deserve that. That's not really true. I'm trying to slander them, but I can't because they're telling me what they think is truth and they're acting in accordance with it and they're pretty nice even though they disagree with me. (laughs) That's how we live lives now as Christians and that same kind of boldness before the Lord and that same kind of readiness to give a defense for the hope that lies within us. So again, might never face uh, an angry Amorite, but you might face an angry neighbor. You might face um, <laughs> an angry coworker. You might face an angry family member. And in the face of that hostility, you know, you're not called to lock them in the bathroom when it's Thanksgiving, you know. You know, Joshua locked his enemies away in a cave, so I'm just going to do the same. So you, you ornery aunts and uncles, you just, we'll just send you to the bathroom. We're going to lock the door. Yeah, <laughs> all right. So uh, the, the New Testament calls us to a life that is uh, perpetually um, looking to um, give a response, an answer for the hope that lies within us within us with gentleness, respect, a clear conscience. So uh, I think that is one way to uh, apply some of the words here um, that we see in the narrative. Next, what happens next? Joshua said, Joshua 10, 22, open the mouth of the cave and bring those five kings out to me from the cave. And they did so and brought those five kings out to him from the cave, the king of Jerusalem. And you remember the Uh, Jerusalem at this point is not the capital of Israel. Instead, it is ruled by the Jebusites, who who are a people that are on that list that God said, judge them, bring destruction to them. Uh, The king of Jerusalem, the king of Hebron, the king of Jarmuth, the king of Lachish, and the king of Eglon. And when they brought those kings out to Joshua, Joshua summoned all the men of Israel and said to the chiefs of the men of war, like the generals who had gone with him, come near. Put your feet on the necks of these kings. Then they came near and put their feet on their necks. And Joshua said to them, Do not be afraid or dismayed. Be strong and courageous. For thus Yahweh will do to all your enemies against whom you fight. And afterward, Joshua struck them and put them to death. And he hanged them on five trees. And they hung on the trees until evening. But at the time of the going down of the sun, Joshua commanded and they took them down from the trees and threw them into the cave where they had hidden themselves and they set large stones against the mouth of the cave which remains to this very day (coughs) now joshua here after he has time to address the fate of these five kings he orders them out and 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 he makes them an example an illustration a, a spectacle he he gives them first of all or he tells them uh, the generals and, and maybe the other upper officers of the army, come near, put your feet on the necks of the kings. Well, of course, that is um, an image of these kings being completely subdued. 
You know, they are completely, um, uh, they're completely without power and authority over the situation. They have completely been conquered. They have nothing they can do in order to flip the situ- situation around. That is what it means to have someone's foot on your neck. You're completely at the whim of the other person. Huh? No, he literally, they did, no, they literally did put their feet on their neck, but it, re- it represents all those things. It's not just, you know, like, <laughs> you know, take a look at this neck. It just, you know, your, your foot really feels so comfortable on it. You need to check this out. No, it's, it's an image, right, of dominance. It's an image of complete uh, domination of the, these uh, kings and, of course, their kingdom as, as well. Um, now, it, it's hard to imagine, actually, given that they've completely, I mean, completely um, domineered these men and their armies, that, that Joshua has to once again say, do not be afraid or dismayed, be strong and courageous, for thus Yahweh will do to all your enemies against whom you fight. It's a pep talk. I mean, that theme of do not be afraid or dismayed, be strong and courageous, it always comes through, not when things are super great, but we always see that command in Joshua when they need that encouragement. And I don't know, it's a little bit curious to me, like, I mean, wasn't that whole day kind of a big morale booster that the sun stopped for you, they were into a panic, you didn't lose anybody, you completely destroyed, giant hailstones are falling and killing more of the enemy than you're killing. The whole day seems to be very much like an encouragement that you're doing the right thing, you're, you're on the right track, and I don't know, I, I, I don't think I'm reading too much into it, because again, whenever you see that reiteration of the command, it's because they need to hear it, is despite all of the successes they experienced that day, they still need to be reminded that God is the one who fights the battles. God is the one that's in your corner. The reason you can be confident and courageous is not in yourself, but it's in him. On your best days, on your worst days, that is true. And you all know how easy a day can turn. A day can be the start out. This is the best day of my life. It's wonderful, fantastic. And then just in a heartbeat, you know, you get an accident. You get bad news on the phone. You know, uh, something happens that can just instantly bring you to um, the opposite feeling and experience. We always need to be told, no matter how successful we are, no matter how down in the dumps we are, don't be afraid, don't be dismayed, be strong, be courageous. Yahweh will do to all, uh, Yahweh will fight your enemies for you. I mean, that's, that's hard to remember t- at times, especially when things are good. So I, I imagine maybe, there, maybe there's both kinds in the crowd. Maybe some are thinking, we are the best. We are so awesome you know, we, we can do anything that we want, and their pride is creeping in. Well, to them, you say, it is Yahweh who's fighting. Be strong and courageous because of that. But it seems like the implication here is more that there were some that despite all of this success, despite seeing heaven and earth stand still, they still were a little concerned and a little bit worried. Is, is our luck going to hold out? Is you know, was this just a one-off? I, I, I don't know. Why else would Joshua have to make the trouble of doing this demonstration? Put your feet on their necks. You see that? Yahweh has won this battle. Don't be afraid. Be strong. Be courageous. 
Um, and so even maybe you're, you know, you're like Joshua and many of uh, the leaders in, uh, uh, that we see and people we see, insecure, you know, about, uh, about what God is going to do, insecure about whether you're good enough. Well, we can always use the reminder. Don't be afraid or dismayed. Be strong and courageous. Yahweh is the one who fights our enemies. And again, I was trying to find some a connection to us and to the New Testament. And I thought of Romans chapter 8, verse 31 through 37. These are familiar words. But you'll notice there's actually some, uh, a little bit of, um, a, a little bit of wartime uh, analogy here, at least at the end, or at least, yeah, at, at the end of this passage. Romans 8.31, what then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? Who can stand as our enemy? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised who is at the right hand of God, who is indeed interceding for us. What, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword, as it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers nor height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. I hope it's helpful to understand that while we will never face an Amorite king, we will face the trials of life and God wants us to have the same kind of perseverance, courage, steadfastness that Joshua and the Israelites were being encouraged to on that day. That now in the New Testament, we say, because Jesus Christ has died for us, the covenant is ours. The promise-keeping God is on our side. No one can stand against us. And no matter what might happen to us, even the worst of life, that's the list there. You know, tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, naked, danger, sword. That even if the worst things were to happen to us, there's no greater sign of God's ability to fight for us than that we are able in all of those things still to remain conquerors, overcomers through him who loved us. That nothing can separate us from the love of God, not Death, life, angels, powers, authorities, demons, nothing in the creation can separate us from the love of God. That is the source of our confidence in the New Testament. When we say be strong and courageous, when we say do not be afraid or dismayed, we mean because Jesus Christ has in his love died for us, died for our sins and rose again. So, we're not necessarily talking about Amorites and advice about the Amorites, but we're talking about even more pressing, well, what about when it seems like the enemies have overcome me? Well, you can't be overcome because nothing can separate us from him. 
Going back to Joshua chapter 10, and uh, we have a reference there to a command in Deuteronomy 20:23 to not let um, a, a person hang overnight, lest they be accursed. And, uh, and that's something that they extended even to these pagan, wicked kings. Um, actually, it's also why Jesus and the Thebes were not allowed to hang overnight, despite in the Roman custom, they would just have you hanging up there for days, weeks, however long it took you to die. But they give, they were, they were pretty accommodating to the Jewish people. The Jewish people say, we don't let people hang overnight. So that is why Jesus was um, taken off the cross along with the thieves, and, and buried uh, just before the sunset. The rest of this chapter from, oh, oh, and I should say, and at the end there, they turn these kings into a memorial in a way. That at the time that Joshua was written, and we presume that Joshua uh, had at least a small hand in writing this book, um, that at the end of his life, um, and perhaps even into further into uh, the gen- next generation that you could point to the place where these Amorite kings had been buried. And you could point to the stones that commemorated God's victory over them, that there was uh, a remembrance of the things God had done on their behalf. And I think just real fast, it's one of those things that we see throughout the Old Testament to remember what God has done. It's not a bad idea to commemorate or mark when God has done great things for you. I don't know. I, I, I'm, this is a problem for me. I don't keep a journal or anything like that. Um, and so my memory becomes very short, and I know I suffer for that. Not because like, I forget things per se, um, but because uh, it's easy to get discouraged about whether the Lord is working and, and what he's doing in my life. And, uh, and I've said this many times before, but when I start to think, it's hard for me to think sometimes about my own life and how God has been faithful. But what helps me a lot is hearing your testimonies. Like, oh, God is working in so-and-so's life. And I heard, I remember just last week, you know, God did this for, for this person in the congregation. But uh, I, I realize I probably need to do a little bit better job of uh, commemorating the times when God was really faithful and, and came through for me. But that's the idea here. And you, you have that, we've already seen that in Joshua multiple times. They made a, an altar, right, of 12 stones, uh, when they cross over the Jordan. That's something God recognizes about us, that we're a forgetful people. Um, and frankly, they will forget what happened to these Amorite kings because in the time of the judges, which falls after Joshua, they're going to fall into the same evils and sins as these Amorite kings. doesn't matter if you have a million shrines and a million remembering uh, edifice, uh, edifices built to remember their victory. They still fell, and we're going to fall into sin. But something just to consider by way of applications, um, remembering God's faithfulness to us. All right, now, the rest of the chapter from about 28 all the way to um, to the end, it's going to follow basically the same theme. I I don't, I debate reading it. I know we've read through Joshua uh, before, but I think maybe for sake of time, uh, I'll, I'll, encourage you to read through it. It's a pretty quick read, but the pattern is this, and I will read verse 28. As for Makeda, Joshua captured, captured it on that day and struck it and its king with the edge of the sword. He devoted to destruction every person in it. He left nothing remaining, and he did to the king of Makeda just as he had done to the king of Jericho. 
And you'll see basically the same pattern. They went from Makeda to Libna. They destroyed everything with the edge of the sword, let nothing uh, in it. Uh, then they went to Libna, to Lachish. And again, you can look on your map on the back of your papers. And they captured it. They struck with the edge of the sword, killed everybody. Then um, Horam, king of Gezer, came up to help Lachish. And Joshua struck him and his people until he left none remaining. And they went from Lachish to Eglon, laid siege, killed everyone. They went from Eglon to Hebron. They fought against it, captured it, struck it. Everyone died. Then Joshua and all Israel turned back to Debir, fought them, destroyed them, left none remaining, did just as they did to the other kings, struck the whole land, verse 40 says, the hill country, Negev, lowland slopes, everywhere, left nothing remaining. All of it was destroyed just as God has commanded. The whole, you could say, south of the promised land. Joshua captured all their kings because, this is the most important part, again, Yahweh, God of Israel, fought for Israel. The reason for their success, the grand military success here was not superior arms, superior tactics, superior soldiers, superior even leadership. The reason for their success, and this is great military success, there's no losses here. It's all wins. The reason is because Yahweh, God of Israel, fought for Israel. The secret to their success was God was on their side. That is what they needed to remember. And then Joshua returned back to the camp at Gilgal. <clears throat> now, um, we won't rehash what we've already talked about regarding how these nations were being devoted to destruction, but we, we said that this was God's judging hand against them and that nothing happened to this people that was not... Um, out of God's holiness in accord with his righteousness, that there was nothing uh, wrong or evil about God choosing this moment to bring judgment upon this people, just as it's always his right and his timing to judge anyone for their sins at his timing, at his prerogative. So I won't rehash that whole discussion, but just understand uh, they are keeping the commandments of God by doing this, destroying all the people. It's not a genocide It's not wiping them out because of their ethnicity or because of their culture or their heritage. They're being wiped out because they had sinned persistently against a holy God. And God said, this is the time for their judgment. Their time is up. And also what is what is uh, true of these pagan nations will be true of Israel too. That when it was Israel's turn, because they had forsaken God and and turned away and persistently ignored God's call for repentance, judgment would come upon them in the same or worse ways. So God is very consistent about this in the Bible. He doesn't show partiality. Um, The picture of God here, as always, fulfilling his promise. We can trust God to keep his promise. We see the consequences of sin is this death and destruction. Again, this is not the malice of an army. This isn't just the cruelties of war. This is God's judgment and intended to communicate to us. Probably not going to see this kind of warfare ever in our lives. But if we were to witness it on that day, we're not supposed to just say, those evil people are getting what they deserve. They are. But there should be some humility to say, if I don't honor the Lord, the same ought to happen to me. If I am unrepentant in my wickedness and evil, then I too should merit 
this judgment. So, final application, I think, as we kind of end our um, really these uh, spirit, uh, warfare kinds of passages is, of course, to make an application, I think, to spiritual warfare. You are not likely to take up a sword against an Amorite king or the Jebusites, um, but we are all always and presently engaged in a spiritual fight. Second Corinthians chapter 10, verses 3 through 6, one of my favorite passages on spiritual warfare. Paul writes to the church, For though we walk in the flesh, we are not waging war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ, being ready to punish every disobedience when your obedience is complete. And there's so many beautiful things happening in this passage because first of all, it tells us that we are at war. It's an even more critical and important war than the fight for the promised land. You know, 3,400 years ago, we are in a battle for souls. We are in a battle of, of Christ's kingdom and the kingdom of man and the kingdom of Satan. We are in a much bitter, bigger battle than Joshua was ever in. Because if you can resolve the issue with swords and shields and siege weapons, it really isn't that big an issue. But if it takes the very death of Jesus Christ on the cross to overcome the enemy, you know it's a much bigger battle. So we are waging war, every one of us, even if you're not a Christian. Guess what? You're not neutral in this spiritual warfare. Everyone is a part of it. Everyone that you know is involved in the spiritual warfare, whether they understand that or not. But it's important to know it's not a war according to the flesh. And that doesn't, this has been occurring to me more and more. That's not just talking about the way we wage spiritual war. You know, of course you don't use swords and of course you don't use guns. Although there have been times and seasons of, of Christian history where that is exactly how they tried to fight a spiritual warfare. Oh, there's heretics? Edge of the sword, we kill them. Well, that's a very fleshly way. That's how the world does it. This thing, we don't wage war according to the flesh. But that isn't just a statement about using swords to cut down heretics, and we ought not to do that. This is a statement about using any kind of worldly tactic to accomplish God's purposes. Any, I mean, from the subtle, you know, I'm going to be a little bit critical of seeker-sensitive churches, but um, those churches which try to appeal to what is popular in the culture in order to win you to the gospel, that's a fleshly strategy because it's appealing to your psychology. It's appealing to your um, your desires as a Southern California, you know, middle-class American with a lot of, you know, disposable income, like to appeal to that the way advertisers on TV and social media appeal to people to buy milkshakes, you know, and, and beauty products, that's fleshly too. To believe that politicians are going to solve spiritual problems, that's very fleshly. 
That's what the world thinks you do, is that you legislate people into godliness or holiness. Could it ever be so? Of course not. That is a fleshly tactic. That is waging the warfare according to the flesh. No, no. The weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. The weapons are truth, because he says next, we destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ. So in the same way, you could say that Joshua and the Israelites were to wipe out even every man, woman, and child of these Amorite kingdoms. And thank the Lord we don't have to do that. But with that same complete absolute call for destruction, Paul is saying we need to exercise our spiritual gifts, our, our, our spiritual weapons against every thought that is contrary to the knowledge of God. That we are truth warriors, truth bringers, that until every anti-Christian, anti-biblical, anti-truth argument and opinion is taken captive, is destroyed, then we are not complete and done. We cannot rest on our laurels. We can't say mission accomplished. Every thought must be taken captive to the obedience of Christ. But lest you think this is a warfare against us and the world, you know, us and you know, those, the, you know, the other religions or, or other you know, uh, people groups, where does this battle start? And where must this battle be most fierce? Being ready to punish every disobedience when your obedience is complete. You know, this Paul's telling the Corinthians, you know, you can get about this much better. You know, taking on the world and all the, the lies and the falseness out there if you get your thoughts under control. If you root out the sin in your own heart when you are obedient. And now, you know, it's, when your obedience is complete, don't, don't take that to mean that you have to be perfect as a Christian before you can go out and be one of God's um, soldiers, you know, a soldier of Christ. No, it's... It's more that Paul is kind of setting up, I think, the expectation that you need to realize this battle happens here first and foremost, and then you go out there. Because then you'll have the right sense of humility. Because, of course, if I think everyone else is wrong and I'm right, I'm going to wage this warfare incorrectly. I'm going to think things are ungodly thoughts that are really just thoughts that go against what I think. If I go, if I don't first look in my own heart, I'm going to um, speak to others, not in the gentleness and respect that First Peter 3 talked about, but in hostility, antagonistically, with the I'm better than you attitude, um, or a, a self-righteous, condescending uh, heart. No, this is simply emphasizing we must always first be willing to do the spiritual warfare here, here, my own life. And then when I realize just how messed up I am and how I think, I'll have the humility perhaps to go and tell someone else, you know, you need Jesus. 
the things going wrong in your life, it's because you have ungodly thoughts. And I've had them too. And here's where it led me. And here's other people who have, who have, who have fought the fight and won. And here's people who ignored God and the consequences they face. But you won't do that in the way that, that a God intends, in a way that adorns the gospel without first looking at the disobedience in our own heart the ungodly thoughts and arguments and opinions in our own heart. So we must first destroy those strongholds here and then out there. That's simultaneously, yes, sure. But the priority is here um, before out there. So I think when we speak of then going back to Joshua and, and just the idea of this warfare, now we do fight a more significant battle uh, there's more at stake, there's more involved, it's a tougher, more entrenched battle, but you are. As much as those Israelites were in the battle against those Amorite kings, you are also, as a Christian, in the spiritual battle. Well, have you done the self-inventory to make sure that as you are a soldier of Christ, you are first trusting in Christ yourself? If you're not a Christian, uh, you're a part of the spiritual warfare, whether you like it or not. And in fact, you find yourself on the opposite side of God, that you would seek to even try to strive and win against the one who created everything is foolishness. You must be like the Gibeonites who realize the desperate state they're in and plead with God. I don't deserve it, uh, but I completely don't want to be destroyed and held accountable for my sin. So please forgive me. Please show mercy to me. Please be gracious to me. I don't deserve it. And throw your feet at the mercy of God. And you know what? He will hear you. He will respond. God shows us his love and that while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son. While we were enemies. So if you find yourself in the spiritual warfare on the opposite of God, there is Oh, there is forgiveness if you put your trust and faith in Jesus Christ. Now, of course, you could say a lot of others. I debated uh, 2 Corinthians 10 or Ephesians 6, you know, the, the armor of God. Well, you can do homework, Ephesians 6, 10 through 18, and look at the armor of God. How do you armor up? And you know it's a spiritual battle um, because of uh, the description there. But look at Ephesians 6, 10 through 18 if you want more um, uh, more encouragement to stand firm in the spiritual warfare. And as we close, I, I, I wanted to just ask, does anyone have any thoughts or questions or applications from Joshua 1 to 10? Because again, we're going to kind of turn a quarter in the narrative there, and it's going to be a little bit different. Um, so I thought, hey, we've got a few minutes. Does anyone have any questions, comments, applications uh, of anything that we've covered from Joshua 1 through 10? Here's your chance. That's okay if you don't. <laughs> I've done such a thorough job, right? <laughs> you'll think of it right as soon as I pray and close, and then you'll have some questions. Oh, okay, Inez.
No, I, I, no, I, I appreciate that. And that's, uh, you know, I say this a lot, but my assumption is that anything you hear on a Sunday service message should only be the beginning of your thoughts on that passage, not the end of it. I hope that it's not, oh, that's the final word about Joshua 10, nothing more to say, Pastor, you covered it all. No, no, no. My assumption is this is just the beginning of your thoughts on this passage, that you would mull it over and think about it, um, research it yourself if you found a couple things that really clicked with you. But hopefully this is just the beginning of your thoughts on these things, not the end of it. Which one? Yeah. Yeah, 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 that are, are the weapons of our warfare, or we don't fight um, uh, according to the flesh. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And we're saying how. Sure. Well, there's I there's more to say about Second Corinthians ten three through six. I've actually I preached on that passage probably a couple times, and it always impresses on me uh, a lot of things that I you know you you always see something different when you read through Scripture. It's not that it changed its meaning, but just it's more meaningful to you because of what you're going through or what you're thinking, and you see things there um, that were always there. But now they're, they mean something to you, so they kind of stand out. Yeah. Yeah. Any other thoughts, comments, questions, applications before we finish up tonight? Well, if you come up with anything, we can talk about it over dinner. I hope you enjoy us for, uh, join us for that. Let me pray and we'll close. Heavenly Father, we, we thank you. I thank you that you have won the victory, that you are the one who fights our battles for us. And in a way, even when we engage in the spiritual warfare, we only do so out of the power that you've given, uh, out of the confidence that we have that Jesus Christ has conquered sin. So we cannot take every thought captive into the obedience of Christ without Christ. So help us to always remember that, that the source of our um, of our bravery, our courage, of not being afraid and dismayed is the very confidence that Jesus Christ has won the battle. He has uh, done it all, that he is the one fighting for us. And Lord, if he has fought and won for us, then that should make us ever more confident to deal with and engage in the spiritual battle, um, both in our hearts and in the world around us. Help us to be faithful to that. Help us to be encouraged. Um, Lord, I know it's very easy at times to fall prey to um, the, the issues going around us and feel that they're overwhelming. But help us, Lord, to realize you're in control. Your hand is upon it. So thank you, Lord, for your faithfulness towards us. Thank you for the time we can share together in a meal with each other. May it be edifying and encouraging to our souls. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.